We're going to work in the Gospel of John. Here's one of the things about the Gospel of John. We've been taking a long walk through this Gospel, which is great. We've been working our way bit by bit through this text over the course of most of this year. Uh, We actually won't finish the Gospel of John until Easter of 2022, uh, which is just a few months away, actually, at this point. But one of the things that can happen when you're in a long study in a book like this is you can lose a little perspective of how condensed the actual time frame is. So I'm going to give you uh, a quick run-up. Last week, Paul addressed the first 17 verses of the chapter of chapter 15 of John, which is one of the most beautiful passages of the entire scriptures. And when Jesus talks about being the vine and including us in that love that he shares with the Father and that that father from the fa- love from the Father flows down to him as the Son and out to the disciples to share with each other and the world, it's wonderful. This week, we're going to deal with a little bit of a difficult shift in the conversation. Uh, You might have got a little sneak preview when you heard the scripture reading, but we're going to talk about how this happens. And because it is difficult, I'd like to ask if you join me in prayer, prayer for clarity for me, and prayer that the work that I put into preparing this sermon would be helpful for us as a church. So if you join me as we pray. God, we come before you this morning as your people. God, people that you have included in your family because of your love. We're so grateful to be included in that. God, I pray that you'd meet us here this morning that this act of worship and communion and learning would be something that would shape us. God, I pray specifically um, that you would be with me, that the work that uh, I've put in would be helpful to this church and encouraging to the people that hear it, and that it would be used to build us up in love, which is what we desire. We pray this in Jesus' name. So uh, like I said, the the build-up to this, we need to have a little bit of a picture. So I'm going to give you a little run-up to this conversation, just so you have a picture of where we are, uh, mainly because we're talking about approximately a five-month period. It's a fairly short amount of time from uh, the middle of John chapter 10, when Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the Festival of Dedication, which you would know as Hanukkah. Uh, And that's right about the beginning of December. We're not too far away from that part of the year right now. It's at that festival that Jesus' fame and his ministry has grown to the point where there is a bit of a hubbub about around him when he shows up. And one of the questions that people keep asking is, are you the Messiah that we've been waiting for? And Jesus affirms it and also affirms that he and the Father are one, which triggers a firestorm among the Jewish believer or the Jewish leadership there. They say, we're going to stone him because he's a blasphemer. And out of that moment, uh, Jesus retreats out. I'm going to back up here. Jesus retreats out to um, the Jordan River area, probably about 20 miles to the east of Jerusalem. And he continues to do ministry over the next few months continuing to teach, continuing to heal, and more and more people are coming to faith in Jesus. But he's about a day's walk away from Jerusalem, and it's kind of an out of sight, is out of mind kind of thing. Until something significant happens in Jesus's life, his best friend Lazarus dies. Now, you, you might say, well, this seems like a great opportunity for Jesus, because after all, when his best friend dies, it's a great opportunity for him to do what we've already learned that he does, which is raise Lazarus from the dead. It'll prove that he is who he said he was, but there's a problem with it. And I'm going to hopefully illustrate the problem by telling you about video games. I have, uh, I have two sons. I have a 14-year-old in eighth grade and a uh, nine-year-old 
in uh, fourth grade, Asher and Beck. And one of the things that they love to do is play video games. Like every kid their age, Fortnite is one of those games. Now, if you don't know anything about Fortnite, I'll, I'll try to help you out. Fortnite is when you get together with a team and you drop into a map together, and then you want to be the last person or last team standing at the end of the game. So you're fighting against other people. Now, here's the reality. The two boys are really good at Fortnite. I am far from good at Fortnite. But I want to be a cool dad. I want to be a good dad. I want to be involved dad, so I play with them. Now, we have two different responses when we play Fortnite. When we land and they see other people in the map, their response is, there they are, let's go get them. My response is, there they are, I'm going to hide in this bush, hopefully they don't see me. Because I know what's going to happen the minute I actually encounter those other players, I'm going to be dead. Like, in no time flat. I never survive a firefight, it's over in no time. And the reality is, Jesus is experiencing something very similar in this moment. Because he knows that the tension is on in Jerusalem, and he knows that if he heals Lazarus. If he brings Lazarus to the dead, it's going to set off a chain of events that will not stop until he's dead. Because Jesus, in order to heal Lazarus, needs to go back to Bethany, which is just about a mile and a half outside of the city walls. The fact that he is going to bring Lazarus back to the dead is going to happen right on the doorstep of the Jewish leadership. And it should be no uh, spoiler to you that he successfully raises Lazarus. He brings Lazarus to the dead, and it creates absolute chaos. As you can imagine, a man has come back to life, and this teacher, this rabbi that is claimed to be the Messiah, is the one that did it. And there are two things that come out of that. The first one, I've titled it Faith and Betrayal. The text tells us in John 11 that many of the Jews put their faith in them, but some of them were rats. It says some of them went to the Pharisees to tell them what was going on and to stir up trouble. And when they hear what Jesus has done, they, they become resolved. We're not just going to kill Jesus in the heat of a moment because of something he said. We're going to have a cold, calculated, first-degree murder kind of plan. We're going to premeditate this thing. When we get the opportunity, he's dead and we're going to kill him. And Jesus knew that was going to be the result. In fact, last week when Paul taught on his section in love, one of the things that Jesus says is that there is no greater love than this that a man would lay down his life for his friend. We use that as a philosophical, like, hey, giving of yourself for someone else. Jesus meant it literally because the cost to him to raise his friend to life was his own death a death that we then get to experience. But this moment with Lazarus is a concrete example of this. His choice to go and raise Lazarus means that he has put himself in harm's way. Jesus does what I think is logical. He retreats to the hills. It says he, withdraw, he withdrew to a region in the desert uh, by a village called Ephraim, which is about 17 miles northeast of Jerusalem. It's on the hill country out in the wilderness. He pulls back because he has some timing that he wants to roll out. And it's there that he teaches and he continues his ministry until right before Passover. Passover is gonna, would be right about Easter on our calendar, the one that you're used to. So it's about five months after that confrontation at Hanukkah. It's a week out. 
Passover, and it says he goes back to Bethany, right outside the city walls. Once again, he goes to his best friend Lazarus's house, and he spends some time there. Now, you'd think maybe he'd be quiet. Maybe he wouldn't want anybody to know he was in town. No, because the time is here. What Jesus does instead is he gets a donkey, and he rides through the gates. And all of those people that now have put their faith in Jesus and heard that he's raised a man from the dead and believe that he's the king make a huge ruckus. They cut palm branches and they cheer and they chant and they sing that their king is here. You can imagine what this does to the leadership. They were already cold-blooded, ready to kill him, and now here he is making a ruckus and everybody says he's the king. It's over for this guy. We pick up Jesus' last supper with his friends where he famously washes his disciples' feet. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and he showed them the full extent of his love. And he does it by serving them, washing their feet, and then teaching them. It's right in the middle of that demonstration of his love that we get Judas who betrays Jesus and Jesus knows it's happening and looks right in the eyes of his friend and says, do what you have to do, but do it quickly. And Judas leaves and it's in the wake of Judas leaving. And you can imagine the chaos that brings where suddenly Jesus has said, someone's gonna betray me and Judas gets up and leaves and everybody's kind of chaotic. What's happening? And Jesus does what he's so great at. He comforts and he encourages them. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. This is all in my plan. This is all part of what must be accomplished. And he encourages them. And he reaffirms his love. John 15, he says, love each other as I have loved you. Last week, that's the section of that meal where Jesus encourages them of the Father's love for him and therefore his love for the disciples and their love they should share with each other and share with the world. It must be an absolutely encouraging moment to hear how much God loves them and how much his son Jesus loves them. And then he says, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. Record scratch. What? I thought we were talking love and this was great and we were part of the vine and you were gonna bring a bunch of fruit. It's gonna be, wait, what? Hate? They're gonna hate me? This week on Wednesday, I had the opportunity to perform a wedding um, that's not a picture of their actual wedding, but boy, wouldn't that be great? Uh, it was a beautiful wedding. Some friends of mine got married, and I, I had the privilege of being able to perform the wedding. And one of the things that they wanted to do, which is uh, kind of of the moment, is write their own vo- vows. A lot of uh, couples will go, th- go through this wanting to write vows for each other for their wedding. But what I, th- what I thought was interesting is although they had personalized a bunch of it, they kept some of the key parts at the end of what you think of as the traditional vows because they're so important to the commitment of what it looks like to be married. The part where it says, for better, for worse, and richness, uh, for richer or poorer, sickness and health, until death do us part. For better or for worse really sums up what you're agreeing to in a marriage, right? We're going into this because it's great and we love each other and you love me and we're committed to this thing, but we also are realistic. We understand that at some point in the future, it's not always going to be rosy and easy and wonderful. Sometimes because of us, sometimes because of things that happen to us, but because we're married and committed to each other, this thing cannot be broken. When you get sick, I'm with you. When you are suffering, I am standing next to you. 
There's a reason that Jesus uses the imagery of a wedding when he talks about him and the church, because likewise, we are wedded together to him in love for better or worse. Last week, we talked about for better. This week, we're talking about for worse. Because the reality is, there is difficulty that comes from being Jesus's bride. And here's what he says about that. If you belong to the world, John 15, 19, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world because I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Jesus says, if you were theirs, if you went along with their deal, they would be totally cool with you. But you're not theirs, you're mine. And I've called you out. And that's gonna cause tension. I think one of the things that we have to address here is what does it mean when it says the world? Because the world is used in the scriptures in a lot of different ways. One of the ways that it can be used is like the entirety of the creation, or it can say that God so loved the world, meaning all of the people that he sent his son. But this is trying to get at a different idea. Summarized it this way, the world in this case is a reference to the systems, cultures, habits, practices, and structures of humanity that are built apart from submission to God. This is the way humanity goes about life when God's not part of the picture. And what Jesus says to them is if you were going along with that, they would be totally fine with you. The problem is I've called you out of those systems, cultures, habits, practices, and structures to be mine. And because of that, they're going to hate you. And you might say, well, that sounds a little dramatic. Well, let me illustrate for you if I could. Here's what happens in Acts chapter 19. This isn't too far after Jesus has left and the disciples and especially the apostle Paul are out planting churches. Paul has landed in a place called Ephesus, a wealthy, influential city in uh, Asia. Would center, uh, what would that be? Western Asia, Turkey area. Uh, and he's there for two years He's there and he's convincing people that Jesus is the Messiah and to follow him. And because Ephesus is in this key city, that influence is spreading all over the region. Many people are coming to faith in Jesus. And it starts to represent a crisis. And here's the way it talks about the crisis. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis. Artemis was the god, the patron god of their city. There was a big temple in town dedicated to Artemis, which people would make pilgrimages to come honor. So this is a guy who's a silversmith. He makes silver shrines for the goddess. He brought in no little business for the craftsmen. And he called together all of the men in his trades group, along with workmen in related trades. And he said, men, you know we receive a good income in this business. Now he continues from here and he tries to like gussy this conversation up with honor for Artemis and how she's such a great god and goddess and we really need to make sure her name's not besmirched. But you notice where he starts. This is gonna cost us some cash, boys. If this guy keeps having influence and people keep opting out of the system of worshiping Artemis as the way it's done around here, we're gonna suffer. And we can't let that happen, so we need to shut this down. What has happened? Paul and the, disciples, the people that he has led to follow Jesus are opting out of the world system as it comes to worshiping this goddess in the temple. And it costs money, and that brings tension, and therefore, they're hated in this moment. 
Going back to Jesus, Jesus tells them, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. When did he say this? It was actually in the same meal when he washed their feet at the very beginning. If you remember, when Jesus went to wash their feet, Peter takes offense to this idea. How dare you wash my feet, Jesus? No way, you can't do that. And Jesus says, a servant is not greater than his master. If I'm willing to do this, you're gonna follow me in this kind of life. Remember, I told you that. So if they persecute me, they're gonna persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they'll obey yours as well. There's, a, there's an interesting uh, concept that you might be familiar with called the continuity of government. This is an idea that uh, is really a self-preservation of any government. Most major industrialized nations have a plan in place to ensure the continuity of their government. The United States has one as well. If you've ever watched... Uh, Oh, now I just lost the, the there was a, a show where everybody got killed and then a guy way down on the list became the president, whatever. That's the one, you know the one. I think Kiefer Sutherland's in it or whatever. That is taking up this idea, right? We've got a plan in place. If the president, something catastrophic happens, don't worry, the vice president takes over. Something happens there, don't worry, the secretary of state takes over. Don't worry, the treasury dude takes over. Don't, you start getting down really low on the list. You don't even know who these people are, but there's a huge list. And here's the idea. If something catastrophic happens, we need to ensure that the operation of the government continues unimpinged and unheeded. We need a continuation of government, a, continue, a continuity of government. And what Jesus says is that he's instituting a new government. And there is a continuity in his government too. Guess who takes over when Jesus is out of the picture? His disciples. He says that what I have done and what I have received, you also will be the one that carries it out. If I'm out of the picture, now it's up to you. If they persecuted me and I'm no longer the meat shield taking the heat, now it's you. If they listened to me and responded, now it's you. That's the reality of what you sign up for to be part of this family of Jesus' followers. You are on the front line representing his government in your place. And when there's complaints, they have every right to come to you because you represent his government. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they don't know the one that sent me. If I hadn't come and I hadn't spoken to them, they wouldn't be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Like, wait a second, they... Just because Jesus came and talked to them, then suddenly they became sinful? They didn't sin before that? No, he's talking about this specific sin, the rejection of Jesus as Messiah. It should not be surprising if you hear of some rando who claims to be the second coming of Jesus, you have every right to say, I don't think so. But see, here's the problem. They didn't just hear about a guy who claimed to be the Messiah. He came to them. He represented himself. He spoke with authority from the scriptures. He produced miracles, wonders, and signs that validated his faith, and they still rejected him. Therefore, they are guilty for rejecting him. They have seen, and they have heard, and they wanted nothing to do with him. Therefore, the sin was upon their shoulders. He, said, he continues on. He says, whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had done among them works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they've seen. 
and yet they've hated both me and my father. Once again, he says, I came and I showed them and they didn't believe, they rejected me. And the rejection of me is not even a rejection of me, it's a rejection of God himself when they reject him. Here's the reality of what Jesus is communicating to his disciples, and then, by extension, us, as we look over their shoulders and read what Jesus was teaching them, the relationship that we have with God, the one that we was instituted and reinforced last week as he talks about us being grafted into the vine of God's family, as he talks about the great love that the Father has for the Son and therefore the Son has for his disciples and that they should have for each other and that we should share with the world, that is an amazing thing to be included in. It is an amazing street to be on. The problem is it's a two-way street. If the love that the Father has from the Son trickles down to you and you have a task to bring it to the world, it'd be great if it just went that way. The problem is you've been given a gift, maybe one you didn't want, and here's what it is. You're also a representative from God going the other way. So when the world says we reject him, we refuse to acknowledge God's authority in our life, they're gonna access him through you. Love comes from the Father through you to the world, and hatred for God comes back through you aimed at the Father. Rachel said to me this week, how are you feeling about your sermon? I said, I'm not that excited about it. I got to be honest. She said, why, why not? It's like, because I got to tell everybody that they're going to get a bunch of hate. That's not very fun, even though it's true. And we need to be prepared for it. And Jesus understood that. So he prepared his disciples and we get the benefit of hearing it. Here's what the scriptures say about Jesus. It says that the sun is the radiance of God's glory. This is in Hebrews right at the beginning. It's describing Jesus's relationship with God. It says the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation. Other translations would say the exact imprint of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. And Jesus reinforces this idea when he says, when they hate me, they're hating God when they hate me because I am the imprint of his character. Now, here's the thing. When you're included in his love and you're included as a brother and a friend, when you're included as part of the family, when you're part of the vine, then the hatred that would have been pointed at Jesus now might come to you. And it's not because you necessarily are doing anything. You represent the Father. This is what Jesus says, because I'm sure he's reading the disciples' faces at this point. You went from like, he loves us, to like, wait, they're going to hate us? What? This is what he says. This is to fulfill what was written in their law. They hated me without reason. That's a, that's a quote from two different psalms. Specifically, probably Psalm 69, in which David, King David, wrote a song in which he talks about his enemies who hated him without cause, without a reason. This is really important. We're going to park here just for a second. Because I want to focus on this idea that they hated me without reason. Because right now, I've just told you that the world will not like you because you are a representative stand-in for Jesus. Therefore, their hatred for the Father, which would have been pointed at him, is now pointed at you. And you say, yeah, I know. I feel that, brother. That's right. I just wanna, I'm going to re-emphasize what Jesus says. He says, without reason, 
not with plenty of reasons. Okay, we're gonna stop here just for a second because he promises that you will get hatred that's aimed for God without reason. Jesus didn't get hatred because he had an obnoxious bumper sticker on his car. Jesus didn't get hatred because he posted vitriol on social media every opportunity he had. Jesus didn't get hatred because he corrected every single person who was, he felt was out of the way. Jesus didn't get hatred because he wore a t-shirt or waved a flag or did any of those things. So if you, as a Christian, there, there's this thing in the church right now because Christian, Christianity and politics have gotten mixed up in a lot of ways that we have decided that we are detectives on the lookout for persecution around every corner. Everything that happens in the world is aimed directly at me because I'm a Christian and they hate me. Maybe that's true. But I would just encourage you, you don't get, Jesus doesn't give you cover for the hatred the world gives you unless you've checked yourself. Is it without reason? Because if, if they hate you because you're an obnoxious jerk, <laughs> he doesn't have any cover for you. You need to stop being an obnoxious jerk and move from there. Jesus says, they will hate me without reason. They've hated me not because I've done wrong. They've hated me not because I've been obnoxious. They've hated me not because I've harmed anyone. They've hated me because I represent the truth in a kind and loving way, and it's repulsive to them. Don't hide under your own obnoxiousness, under Jesus' promise that you will have persecution. I ain't giving it to you. This is what he says. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you've been with me from the beginning. Jesus says that in his uh, continuity of government, he has a two-pronged approach. The first one is he will send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will move in the world, and the Holy Spirit will do work. The Holy Spirit will do work you cannot see. The Holy Spirit will do work that you do not perceive. The Holy Spirit will be reaching people that you have never talked to, preparing their hearts for the testimony that you will bring about Jesus's faithfulness to you and the reign of his kingdom. The Holy Spirit and his followers will cooperate in a cooperative effort to witness about his faithfulness and his righteousness and his goodness and his reign in the world. And we are called to participate in that witness. We are witnessing about two things, the reign of the king and the coming of his kingdom. The reign of the king is hugely important. In the days of the disciples, the reign of the king was a very controversial thing to claim. And it was controversial because the emperor of Rome held this title. He was the guy in charge. He was God's representative on earth, ruling all things. And Christians were making a different claim. Yes, there is a, claim, a king. Yes, he is transcendent. Yes, he is all-powerful. Yes, he is all-knowing. His name is Jesus, not emperor, not Caesar. That was a controversial thing to say. And as a result, it put them in harm's way. Now, you don't have an emperor, but what you do have, particularly in modern Western societies, is you have every single person in every single home across every part of this country, everyone is their own king. 
You have way more people to offend. I'm guessing in those days, although you didn't want to be publicly heard challenging the kingship of the emperor, there was probably a lot of people who looking over their shoulder would give you a, I know what you're saying, he ain't so great. The minute you tell every single person, you are not the king. You're not the king over your own world. You're not the king over your own life. You're not the king over what happens. Jesus is, that's an offensive claim. And we've been called to witness to the truth of that first by demonstrating that it is true in our own hearts. You're going to have a hard time witnessing to the truth that Jesus rules over your own kingship if he doesn't. The second thing that we need to be able to witness to is that his kingdom is coming in full. And those who are outside of submission to the king will be removed from the kingdom. That is a controversial statement. It is a statement that is going to sound like judgment. It's going to sound like somebody, an invitation to say, how dare you? But that is the call of the witness of the church. There is a king, his name is Jesus, and his kingdom is coming, and you're going to want to be a part of it. Here's your invitation. Join us. Now, there's lots of motivations that can come on the other end of hating. I'm going to give you a few. First one we already talked about, opting out. The minute you say the world has a way to operate, a way to assume that things should be, it is economic, it is political, it's social. And when we say as Christians, we're stepping out of the normal flow of that, you will make yourself a target because you are rejecting the way things go. Paul experienced it when they pushed against the economic system that held up temple worship of Artemis. They said, whoa, 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 whoa. Now it's hitting me in my, you can believe any weird thing you want, but the minute it impacts my pocketbook, you, I got a problem with you, bub. That's what they said. And that might be something that you experience. The second one is what I call unmasking, which is when we make the claim that Jesus is king, we are automatically confronting the reality that the artificial belief that you are king and reign over your own world, your own life, your own influence is false. That is rattling to people. It's probably rattled you. If it hasn't rattled you, you need to wrestle with how much you've submitted to that truth. The reality is people are many times not willing to admit or submit themselves to the unmasking that the gospel requires. I have created an entire world for myself in which I am the authority and I make the calls and I'm going to submit that to Jesus. That's hard. That's a hard teaching in the words of Jesus. The third one is they might just misunderstand you. The reality is the early church, it's probably a little harder to misunderstand Christians these days because we tend to be a very large portion of the population for a long period of time. But in the early days of the church in particular, there was misunderstandings everywhere. And the populace didn't like Christians because they were weird. They said that they, one of the very first things that they didn't like Christians about is they said they were cannibals. You know why they said they were cannibals? Because every week they get together and they have a secret meal that they won't let outsiders into and they eat flesh and they drink blood. They are eating people in there. <laughs> then that morphed. Not only that, they said they were eating babies. How did that work? Well, in those ancient societies, if you had a child that you didn't want, that was a burden, that was the wrong gender, that was, had some sort of an illness or deformity, they would leave them out in the elements in the wilderness to die or be eaten by animals. 
And because the Christian church from its earliest inception has been dedicated to the sanctity of life and the commitment that all people are created in the image of God, that was not something that we could stand for, even in the earliest of church. And they would bring those children in to adopt them into their own families. And in the misunderstanding, how are they getting people to agree to be eaten in these cannibal rituals? It must be the babies that they're eating. They're baby eaters. We also were accused of being pyromaniacs because the scriptures talk about the world being refined in fire, being judged in fire. In fact, the emperor Nero, who was not a very good guy, widely reported and assumed started a huge fire in Rome because he wanted to clear space to build a really great temple for himself. And guess who he blamed? You know those Christians, they're pyros and they're psychos and they start things on fire because they're weird. If the world hates you because they don't understand you, that's actually understandable. And you have a job to do, which is to gently and kindly defend your faith. And you can do that. Those ones feel winnable. If it's just misunderstanding, I will tell you though, here's the bad news. Sometimes people misunderstand and they really like misunderstanding you. And no matter what you do to try to clear it up, they ain't listening. They don't want to understand and they are not looking to understand. That might be part of the problem. The last one is what I would call projection, meaning people might just simply be angry at God. They might be frustrated with him. They might, not, they might want to reject his rule over their life. They might think that they've been given a raw deal. They might think they've been mistreated by God and they don't have access to him, but they have access to the next best thing, his kids. And so in an effort to rage against God, they might rage against you. All of those things are reasons that people might hate those who follow Jesus. But th see, here's part of what this makes me uncomfortable, is that it creates in me, a kind of, it, and maybe it's you're feeling the tension of it too, it creates a real us versus them mentality. Like, they're the bad guys, we're the good guys, they hate us, and, and I hear that. I hear that. Here's the problem. Jesus doesn't let us stay there for too long because he flips over to chapter 16 and he continues this conversation. And the us versus them takes on an interesting twist because here's what he says. Now, I've, he's wrapping up. I've told you all this so that you won't fall away. Because when it starts, this is gonna create tension in you. I'm telling you now, so you're not gonna fall away from the faith. And then he says, what's gonna happen? They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time's coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. Here's where the us versus them mentality gets very difficult because it's really us versus us. When he talks about the Pharisees and the synagogue and them being put out and being killed as offering a service to God, you have two warring factions who are saying, we are following the Father faithfully and we are gonna defend the faith. What, what the Jews experience, what the disciples experience from their Jewish perspective is that those that they grew up with, those that they've done ministry with, those that they've loved are going to turn on them. And they're going to say, you are loving in the wrong way and you're loving the wrong people and you're doing this wrong and you need to be expelled from the church and you need to be sent away and I'm doing it to defend God's honor. That's what happened to the disciples. Maybe that's happened to you.
Maybe, maybe you've been in situations where people that you've walked along for a long time, people that you've done ministry with for a long time, people you've served along for a long time, turn on you and say, you're following the wrong gospel. You're loving the wrong people in the wrong way. Maybe they also have said they're doing it to defend God's honor. I don't know if that's happened to you. It's happened to me. And I just want to encourage you because you're in good company. Jesus, the Savior, says to expect it coming. Now, now I'm also going to tell you what I've also experienced. It's shocking when it happens. He told me it's going to happen. Then when it happens, it's like, oh, my goodness, my heavens, how did this happen? I don't really say my heavens, but it seemed appropriate. In fact, you go, well, did it happen in the early church? God's, God's good. And I want to tell you a reason why he's good, because this week I've been wrestling over how to talk about this in a way that doesn't turn us all into, like, angry people. Uh, and in, in my community, my redemption community, a small group that we've led, my wife Rachel and I and our good friends Dave and Krista Pratchard have led an RC for, seven, this is our 17th year together that we've been leading an RC. Um, and this week, we started a brand new study, and because I was preparing for this sermon and I was preparing for uh, the wedding I mentioned earlier, I didn't have much time to prepare for our group. And so we literally are on the way to group, and I say, and Rachel says, well, so what are we going to study? We had just finished going through Colossians, and I was like, First ah, Timothy, I don't really want to get after First Timothy. It came to my head, and I was like, we'll read it together, it'll be great. We open 1 Timothy as I'm wrestling through this. And here's what, here's what it says in 1 Timothy. I'm not going to give it to you, just one second. Just for context, that church, the one that had the deal with Artemis and the silversmith and all the chaos that was going on, that was a church in Ephesus. The letter to the Ephesian church is to that church. When the Apostle Paul moves on from that church and he begins his ministry in other places, he leaves behind his young disciple Timothy in order to try to keep order in that church, okay? First Timothy is the first letter that at least we have recorded of Paul writing instruction to Timothy after he left. And we open it, and here's what I read. Stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these things and they've turned to meaningless talk on social media. Oh, that was just in my translation. I, I was shocked in the moment because as I'm wrestling with how to talk about this, I go, here it is, right here. Paul's first, I mean, we're in the, that's verse five. We start in verse three of this. It's the opening to his letter. What is the primary issue that Timothy is dealing with in his church? People who are accusing other people in the church of having the wrong doctrine and loving the wrong people. And Paul says, they've missed the whole point, and they've turned the entire experience of being in the church as being one of arguing with each other and arguing around the periphery of issues and being technically right while neglecting love. And I was so thankful in that moment because I said, 
this is what he's getting at. The church does this to each other. And it's heartbreaking to do this. Here's the reality. Love will put you on the field. Today at 2.35, the Arizona Cardinals will kick off against the San Francisco 49ers. And in my house, on my couch, the world's greatest quarterback will be sitting. Me. I'm an armchair quarterback, but I'm real good at it. The only person who will try to compete against me to be the greatest armchair quarterback is my wife. And we will both shred the refs, the coaching, the players. They're doing it wrong. They've called the wrong play. Why didn't he turn around and just catch it in the end zone to win the game instead of letting it bounce off the back of his helmet? Right? That's the reality of what love does. Love doesn't let you sit on the couch at home critiquing the team. Love puts you in the end zone blocking when you should have been trying to catch. (laughs) That's the reality of it. The invitation that Christ gives to us as the church is to get engaged in the game of loving people. And when you're on the field, there is going to be a lot of spectators that can't wait to tell you how bad you are at loving how you ran the wrong play and used the wrong defensive scheme and used the wrong translation. That's just the way it goes. I think uh, at least every kid that grew up in my part of the country at my time of life, I don't know if it's true universally today, but everybody was encouraged to have a favorite president, and I had a favorite president. My favorite president is Teddy Roosevelt. Mainly because I, you kind of look like Teddy Roosevelt. I saw that. <laughs> Just wait till the picture comes up. It'll be perfect. Uh, I like Teddy Roosevelt, but the main reason I liked him is because I grew up in North Dakota and nothing cool ever happened in North Dakota except Teddy Roosevelt spent time in North Dakota. And so he was my guy. And as I got older, I actually started to appreciate more and more about Roosevelt. In fact, Roosevelt gave a, gave a famous speech, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it up here, but not so that we can read it. You can go find it later. It's called The Man in the Arena. Uh, and, and there's a great quote from it. There's Teddy. Look it out. <laughs> Look at how great he looks. It's this great quote. And the quote was really challenging the, wor- the wider world who was critiquing America, especially at the beginning of the 20th century, for attempting to make the world a better place. And he really said, like, haters going to hate. People who are going to do the work are going to get critiqued. That's what he said. And it just keeps coming to mind this whole week as this statement. Now, he's talking about doing great things and daring, you know, being audacious and all. And that's great. It's good. But I decided to rewrite it for us, for the church, as an encouragement in this way. Now, keep in mind, Teddy didn't write this, but he rewrote it, and he's very happy about how this went. (laughs) Let me read it for you. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the loving one stumbles or where the loving could have loved better. The credit belongs to the one who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again and finds grace because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to love? Who knows great joy, the great love of the Father, who spends themselves in loving their neighbor, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of the light, and who at the worst, if they fail, at least fail while daring to love greatly. So their place shall never be far from their king, 
and they shall ever be counted among those who neither know, never be counted among those who neither know love nor the life that it brings. I think this quote inspires in me the idea that love is costly. Love will be dangerous and it will be dirty. Love will hurt. Love will invite critique. People will tell you that you're doing it wrong. They will tell you that you've abandoned the things that God cares about. They will tell you that you should stop and submit to what they think about this. We can't be those people. We've been called to be engaged in loving the world on behalf of the Father who loved us first. At that, at that redemption community, the importance of being a community is that there was a woman who's been a close friend of ours for many years, and she, she said something like this about it. We won't have time for the arguments if we're just busy loving like Jesus loved. She said it in an offhanded way, and I thought it summarized it really well. We won't have time for the arguments if we're just busy loving like Jesus loved. And understanding that that's a lot easier to put in a quote on a PowerPoint presentation at church than it is to act out in everyday life. Because in everyday life comes the blood, the sweat, the tears, the rejection, and the hatred. But that means that you're close to Jesus because that's what Jesus went through. It's what Jesus experienced and he invites you to be united with him in his love for the world at great cost. I'll summarize it lastly like this. The Apostle Paul says this in Galatians, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. It's the call that the church has always received. Love is hard and the world will reject your love and those that called you your brothers and sisters will tell you that you're doing it wrong and they will hurt you and it's worth it. And we shouldn't grow weary. And one day, we will reap a harvest of goodness from the Father when his kingdom is made real. And I want to be there. And I hope you want to be there too. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your faithfulness to love us. God, we confess that we are unlovable. We confess even as we talk about this, we are judging people in our lives right now. God, help us to focus on ourselves. Help us to focus on being loving, not because we're great or smart or we figured it out, but because you have loved us and called us to love greatly and love daringly. God, thank you for Jesus who brings us close and calls us friends and brothers and sisters. God, we thank you for his sacrifice and the love that he laid out for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.